So given the opportunity of having a lot of those around at very low cost, particularly if you're then told this is what's going to bring you happiness, this is what is going to bring you summer. Oh, your name's on the bottle. You know, suddenly it's like, oh, well, this is this is my this is the answer to the fact that maybe I don't feel great about myself or I'm confused by the world. You end up consuming more and more of these products being reinforced. They're incredibly cheap. Uh, you're told this is the cool thing to do. Um, your psychology then starts to kick in. Your biology starts to kick in and you want more and more of them. This is why uh, it's incredibly difficult to maintain good health. I founded the BeWell Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. Help me explore this topic further. I am absolutely delighted to speak to Dr. Sandro Demanio. He originally trained as a medical doctor at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. He holds a master's degree in public health and a PhD in non-communicable diseases and has held fellowships at both Harvard Medical School and John Hopkins School of Public Health. Now, Dr. Sandro is a leader in the global health space, especially surrounding nutrition. He has held the role of medical officer at the World Health Organization, and he previously was the CEO of the EAT Foundation, a global platform backed by science for food systems and transformation. Dr. Sandra has worked in Mongolia, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, the USA, Denmark, Switzerland, and Norway, so not many countries, and authored over... 30 scientific publications and 100 articles. And he's also had time to write a cookbook called The Doctor's Diet. So I am incredibly excited to welcome on today's guest, Dr. Sandro. He can bring his impressive knowledge about why public policy is so important and why and how are the food systems today currently failing us. Now, before we jump into today's episode, I want to give a huge shout out to our sponsors, OMG Water, a brand new soft drink which contains 56 milligrams of magnesium, and that is as much as a whole avocado. After listening to today's episode, you will hear Dr. Sandra and I talk about the double burden of malnutrition, how a large majority of the population are overweight but malnourished. And that means they are missing key micronutrients. Magnesium is one of these key micronutrients and minerals which many of us today have below the adequate intakes of. Magnesium plays a key role in over 300 metabolic functions as well as being commonly linked to supporting anxiety and stress symptoms. So it's really important to be aware that you are consuming a wide variety of magnesium-rich foods, such as leafy greens and nuts. By adding in OMG water alongside your daily lifestyle, it can really help make a difference to making sure you're not micronutrient deficient in this area. OMG water is being released this month, so do keep an eye out via their Instagram at OMG water. 
and head to www.omgwater.com to check them out. Welcome, Dr. Sandro. Thank you for coming on Live Well, Be Well today. How are you, firstly? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. So I've already given an amazing introduction to you, but my listeners are probably overwhelmed with your incredible career. I am anyway. I feel like you're way too young to achieve everything you've achieved. Um, Would you be able to just give my listeners a brief overview? And I say brief, but it's going to be quite extensive, actually, of everything that you've achieved today, because it's phenomenal, I have to say. Uh, Thank you. That's really nice. Well, I mean, first of all, it's always a team effort and, you know, it's a, it's all, and it's a mixture of kind of good luck, hard work and serendipity uh, as it is for everyone's careers. Um, I started, uh, grew up here in Melbourne. I, I grew up in a house with uh, a GP dad and, um, and an occupational therapist as a mum. So science and health and community, serving the community were always really um, strong values. Uh, I, I went into, I left school, did, uh, studied medicine uh, here in Victoria and um, loved primary care, loved uh, working with patients one-on-one, really enjoyed general practice and also emergency, but started to notice that um, many of the diseases that the patients I was, I was treating, uh, many of the diseases they were facing were actually preventable. They were diseases that we knew how to prevent or significantly delay. And if, the, if, we, if we simply used the support mechanisms, the technologies, and implemented the policies to make people, uh, to, to, to support people to live healthier lives, um, they would probably get another 10 or 20 years of, of, of good life, or maybe even life. Um, I then started to work internationally. I was uh, um, with, a, with a regional medical student association, got involved, you know, as many of us do, um, in, in sort of international student organisations. Uh, and that led to the opportunity after I finished my internship and my, my preliminary training as a doctor um, to do a master's in public health and then go overseas and do a PhD. Uh, so I found myself in Copenhagen for three years doing a PhD, um, running courses, and my PhD fieldwork was in Mongolia. So I actually spent three years between Mongolia and Copenhagen. And that was, again, really reinforcing. Um, a few things happened through that time. I um, worked uh, as a, I, would, I was part of a relief team to after the Boxing Day tsunami in Sri Lanka. Um, and I also did my master's project in Cambodia and across Sri Lanka, Cambodia and Mongolia, Denmark and Australia, all very different countries. Mm-hmm. What I noticed again was, a, you know, the same group of diseases kept popping up. This same group of preventable diseases kept being, you know, kept emerging as the leading causes of death um, and I was really particularly surprised in countries like Sri Lanka and Mongolia, where I thought it might have been infectious disease or water and sanitation challenges or hunger that were the biggest challenges. But actually, you know, it was the, it was the same group of diseases. It was diabetes. It was heart disease. It was cancer. It was mental illness. Uh, it, was, it was chronic lung conditions. Um, so towards the end of my PhD, uh, I was publishing my papers, really enjoying my time, learning and contrasting the uh, informing and supporting the healthcare system development in Mongolia uh, and working with WHO and and the government there and the US government uh, within this incredible um, socially progressive country in 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 Denmark, which in fact has an obesity rate a third of the UK and Australia. So 
you know, I was almost living in a kind of crossover trial of, of looking at a country that was developing really rapidly, doing some amazing things, but, but westernizing and taking on a Western diet and lifestyle very quickly. And then having been from a country where two thirds of Australians are overweight or obese, very similar to the UK, but living in a country where, you know, only a third, so half or a third as many were, um, were affected by uh, chronic disease, overweight and obesity and kind of comparing, okay, well, what are the differences? What, what, what is it that government's doing? What is it that the healthcare system is doing? What is it that they could be doing in Mongolia? What have we done, you know, differently in Australia that's got us to this position versus the UK, uh, versus Denmark? Um, I launched a social startup uh, at that point because I really felt it was important to um, connect this group of diseases, get, get greater um, awareness and leadership from next generation leaders. So I was in my mid-20s. Um, and I really felt like it was the role of us as next gen leaders across all different sectors to start having conversations, much more meaningful conversations about global health and providing greater leadership in global health. So we, we launched an Indiegogo campaign, a crowdsourcing campaign, raised $60,000 in 30 days, used that to then launch a social enterprise, short films, social media, boot camps, leadership boot camps around the world. Um, I then spent two years at Harvard uh, as a postdoc and junior faculty continuing to kind of evolve my thinking around social movements, social enterprise, global health, and chronic disease. Um, and then the opportunity of a lifetime came up, which was to go to the kind of mothership of global health, to go to the World Health Organization in Geneva and be a technical advisor um, for governments around the world on nutrition and chronic disease, the very diseases that I um, had been focusing on for uh, my career to that to that point and, and had kind of become very passionate about addressing and raising awareness around. Um, so I spent uh, three years at WHO, the same time was very involved in building up EAT, a uh, global science-based platform for food systems transformation with a colleague of mine from Norway. Um, I was hosting a TV show on national TV and Netflix, and um, I, I launched a book. Um, all and, and it kind of sounds a bit kind of crazy, and I had a couple of blogs, and, and it all sounds a bit kind of like you're doing a whole bunch of unrelated, disparate things. But actually, the, the central theme of all of those things, whether it was the TV show, which is called Ask the Doctor, whether it was the cookbook, which was focused on good food and nutrition made simple, or whether it was my work with WHO, everything was really focused on trying to raise awareness and get political support to address chronic disease and, and raise um, the, you know, really to... to um, improve the health of populations worldwide, and particularly those facing greater barriers to, to good health. You know, people living largely in, in poverty in rich countries and, and most of the low or middle income uh, world. Um, and then finally, um, I decided that uh, WHO, I loved my time at WHO, but it was very slow moving for all of its strengths. Um, it, is a, it is a very big organization. And I just felt in my early thirties that I still had too much energy and kind of probably just impatience, to be honest. Um, and so I went back to the startup world, spent 18 months um, scaling uh, EAT with my, with my friend Gunhild and the team, launched the Lancet Commission, launched a Lancet series on the double burden of malnutrition. And then finally, uh, due to a number of different things, including love, um, <laughs> I finally moved back to Australia um, to be closer to my partner and my parents. Um, and uh, and now I lead uh, one of Australia's largest prevention agencies. So it's a it's a government agency 
um, specifically charged with uh, preventing the very diseases that we've just talked about for 10 minutes. Wow. How are you, how are you, how are you still so young and you've done so many amazing <laughs> I might, I might just, mo- I might just mo- moisturize. I mean, <laughs> good, good food, good food and exercise. No, it's a big cliche. No, I mean, look, I, I, I um, it, as I said, it, it, it's, everything is, is a, is a team effort and there have been amazing people that have carried me and supported me. Mm. Um, and, you know, and there have been lots of, lots of, um, uh, false starts and and even failures along the way um but it, it has been an amazing journey and um and it's um yeah i don't know what to say it's it's been fun well i mean there's so many things that i want to pick your brains at now i've heard everything so the first thing so many listeners might not know about the preventable diseases ncd so could you just give a little bit of background about the difference of why we're now dying from as you say, preventable diseases, because there's modifiable risk factors there, as opposed to infectious diseases, because many people might yeah. not realise actually that you can change your lifestyle to prevent these diseases occurring. That's right. So if we go back in time about 100 years, for a billion years up until that point, so for all of time until about 100 years ago, or even less, until about 50 years ago, the world died from the majority of the deaths in the world were due to infectious diseases uh, like pandemics or um, just endemic infectious diseases. People not getting enough food, hunger and malnutrition, um, water and sanitation issues. So, you know, we didn't have toilets. Still, the majority of people on the planet don't have a toilet. Um, so, you know, infectious disease, uh, you, you know, contaminated water, those sorts of things. Um they were the things that caused most of the deaths in the world. And in the last 50 years or 100 years, what's happened is a series of great transformations across the planet that have um, meant that in many parts of the world, those diseases have decreased. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the transformations have actually led to and, and, and stoked the increase of a new group of diseases. Now, this group of diseases 50 years ago were only a small problem. Very few people were obese, very, very few. Like we're talking a couple of percent per, uh, you know, in, in places, a couple of couple of people per hundred in, in the UK or Australia, very small numbers of people um, were living with obesity or diabetes. Uh, cancer was far less common, probably because we also didn't diagnose it very well, but um, it was some of the cancers were far less common. Uh, chronic lung conditions like COPD or tobacco-related chronic lung conditions, you know, were far less common. Um, and even mental Ill- illness wasn't as common. Again, probably a mixture of under, under-diagnosis, but also mm-hmm. it, it is increasing. And, and what changed was that these great transformations. So um, the world urbanised. We, we moved into big cities, which came with, so many benefits to our lives and in in fact you know moving uh into houses high quality housing with good quality air with chimneys that get rid of the smoke out of our houses um living in a you know and having access to sewerage and good quality water all of those things extended our lives enormously having access to or you know industrializing and globalizing our food system so you know one country is not trying to produce all of its own food we're able to depend on each other and trade 
you know, globalization, the interdependency of our economies, um, all of these things have um, have totally transformed the way we the ways that we live, and it's meant that with the rise of health technology and medical technology, things like vaccinations, but also things like you know flushing toilets and and high quality housing and and cities where we can access hospitals really easily, all of these things have seen in many parts of the world a decrease in infectious disease, water and sanitation challenges, and um, and malnutrition and malnutrition in particular was because of the green revolution the great increase in food production that we we're able to ramp up and produce more food now not to say that they didn't all come with huge costs hmm. they did and those costs are you know the flip side so the infectious diseases decreased and what we call non-communicable diseases you know you can kind of guess by their name by the fact that they're defined by what they're not that they weren't a big focus when they were kind of designed or when they were discovered, these were kind of, you know, peripheral issues. But now over time, because the, the you know, our lives have got longer, uh, we, we're living in more dense environments, our food systems and our, our economies have globalised and, and, and commodified, we're seeing an increase in things like diabetes, heart disease, cancers, chronic lung conditions, the huge explosion of tobacco smoking worldwide over the last couple of centuries. Um, you know, increases in alcohol, the globalization of food. So, you know, big food companies and processed foods. We didn't have processed foods 50 or 100 years ago. We didn't have, you know, we certainly didn't have access to the, the diversity and the scale of processed foods that we have today. And so where we, where we sit today is that actually it's flipped and the majority of the world's deaths, even in the poorest countries, uh, are caused by this group of chronic, uh, chronic non-infectious diseases called non-communicable diseases, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, chronic lung conditions, and mental illness. Now, the reason we bring them all together is because while it might not be clear to most people what the connection between cancer and diabetes and heart disease is, there are what we call share modifiable risk factors. So there are things that drive each of those diseases together. An example would be alcohol. So alcohol is a major source of calories. It leads to weight gain. It increases the risk of heart disease and it increases the risk um, of diabetes through weight gain, but also um, other pathways. Another example would be tobacco smoke. So tobacco increases uh, the risk of, uh, or the risks from diabetes it increases the risk of heart disease, but it also obviously is a major driver, the major driver of chronic lung conditions. So there are there are modifiable risk factors, which are diet, poor diet, a lack of exercise or physical activity, uh, alcohol consumption and tobacco consumption or tobacco use. Those four modifiable risk factors are actually major drivers for all of those four, plus have connections to mental health, five, um, diseases. And so about 15 years ago, the United Nations said, okay, we need to formalize this because countries don't, countries are trying to kind of grapple with this new set of diseases and set policies. And governments are trying to take action to protect populations from these diseases. We need to make it clearer that they can take action on this set of four modified, what we call modifiable risk factors, four kind of disease drivers. And have a huge impact across 
multiple diseases. And that's where the concept of non-communicable diseases emerged. We had the first UN high-level meeting in 2011, um, and you know, and, and they made a, a, a big, big bunch of recommendations. Now, what's important to understand is that, yes, there are things that we can do as individuals. Absolutely. You know, we can think about our diet, really important, increase fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, healthy oils, um, high quality proteins. Uh, we can also get more exercise and physical activity. We can not smoke, really important, and we can drink less or no alcohol. That said, the main determinants of these diseases are actually at the political level. It's, it's political action that is going to safeguard most of us from these diseases. And the best example of that is, is tobacco laws. You know, we had in, slow and steady increases in tobacco consumption in most countries because, you know, the promotion of it, the, the way companies, you know, push it on young people, those are really hard for young people to navigate and they're highly addictive once you do start. So the best thing that, that you can do, we can do as a collective to protect people from tobacco is actually through laws and increasing the prices, banning it in public spaces and, and protecting populations. You know, things like not smoking on an aeroplane, which now seems absurd to smoke on an aeroplane, but 20 years ago was common practice. It's those sorts of things that really make the most difference and that's, that's the area of, of public health that I work in. And we've seen that in the sugary beverages and the drinks, haven't we? And the policy that was come in around, we've got action for sugar, which I'm sure that you're very much aware of and probably involved with in the UK, but that has made a huge difference. And I think diet plays such a fundamental part in our general lifestyle. And I think the, you, you explained it so eloquently there about how much it does impact our health. And I think so many people, because food is part of our culture, it's a social aspect. We also use it for energy mm. and for working out. It, you know, that's part of our, of our lifestyles. We don't always realize the impact that is having on our health mentally, yeah. as well as physically. And I talk Absolutely. a lot about mental health as well. Um, and I, I think- mean, food, food is everything. Food is yeah. everything. It's not even just, I mean, first of all, the food that we eat literally forms the basis of Ourselves. the building blocks of our body. Yeah. So, you know, what, what we consume is who we are. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and you, so you can't be more, you can't be more kind of profoundly, um, it can't be more profoundly important than, than that. Um, at the same time, food also is so inextricably linked, as you said, to, to culture, to love, to friendship, to identity. You know, it, it's, the, it's the thing that brings us together. It's the thing that we are obsessed with on TV. It's the thing that we Instagram. Uh, it's the thing that we spend all weekend reading about. It's, you know, it, it's, it's part of who we are and part of, of what we are as a society. Um, and then at the macro level, it, it, it's driving and behind and related to you know, so many of the successes of, of humans and, and mankind, but also so many of the major threats that we face. And that's, that's why I think food is so important because it really is that common kind of golden thread from um, us as individuals in our, in our kind of down to the individual microbiota and the individual cells of our body, all the way through to things like climate change, food is at the core. Um, and food is the opportunity because it's something we all do but it's also something that we can, you know, so we feel a sense of, uh, a sense of uh, agency and ownership, which is very empowering 
when we live in a world where very often these things feel overwhelming. But it's also something that, you know, we can take collective action, that we can take community and um, national action around and make a big difference through um, as well. The climate change is something I really, really want to talk to you about. But before we get to that, the food systems is where I'd also like to start because I've done some work around this as well. And it's it amazed me the more that you look into it, actually, how much it has effect on your life. And I think the most deprived areas have the highest amount of fast food places and takeaways. You look at, you know, the prices of fruit and vegetables against ultra processed foods. Do people really know the extent of what ultra processed foods is? Do they just think of it as one kind of dominator of food, but actually it's quite a bit large variety of foods. So mm. maybe start at really what, how would you describe ultra processed foods? Because two thirds of Britain's baskets are packed of ultra processed foods. So ultra processed foods, uh, you're absolutely right. And so, you know, if we ultra processed foods are foods that have basically been broken down to it, their individual components, it's no longer food. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is not an apple that's been freeze dried or a pea that's been frozen. This is, you know, food that has come in as bulk commodities. You know, one of the three or four grains that we grow huge global amounts of, we break it down into its individual components like you know, individual saccharides, and then we build it back up into something that, you know, is going to um, feed, you know, light up our brain, uh, deliver very often deliver very little nutritional content. um, And, you know, but is very, very cheap to make in very large quantities, and often is very high in salt, fat, and or sugar. And it's though it's the combination, in fact, of those things with 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 poor quality carbohydrates often um, that creates a a product. It's not a food, it's a product by this Mm. stage. It's something that has, you know, an ingredient list that you need a PhD to understand. Uh, You know, the the ingredient list is kind of longer than, you know, than than the description of the product. Um, And it's, and by this stage, you know, we're creating foods that speak to um, our biology that speak to that are designed to kind of almost manipulate our biology, manipulate our psychology as humans. Very often, combined with marketing, you know, they you consume them; they're very easy to consume. They don't leave you full for very long, so on purpose, so that you then consume more of them. Um, and they're made from, as I said, from you know, breaking down uh, foods into individual products, individual components, and then building them up in a very scientific process um, to to be, you know, that sweet spot for the consumer to make them incredibly palatable. Um, You know, some would say, you know, even, you know, products that are very high in sugar and salt have addictive elements. I think the science, you know, that might be pushing the science a bit far, but I think they're certainly designed to appeal in a way to your to your human body you got to remember we lived in caves you know not that long ago and we were so calories were so scarce that our body was was naturally drawn to things that were sweet or that was drawn to things that were calorie dense Mm -hmm. so given the opportunity of having a lot of those around at very low cost particularly if you're then told this is what's going to bring you happiness this is what is going to bring you summer oh your name's on the bottle you know suddenly it's like oh well this is this is my this is the answer to the fact that maybe I don't feel great about myself or 
I'm confused by the world, you end up consuming more and more of these products being reinforced. They're incredibly cheap. Uh, you're told this is the cool thing to do. Um, your psychology then starts to kick in, your biology starts to kick in, and you want more and more of them. Um, you know, th this, is, this is why uh, it's incredibly difficult to maintain good health in our current global food system. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it is really important to acknowledge that. It actually is very, very hard to be healthy these days. You know, right. the amount of advertising, the amount of advertising that you pass simply going to school or back, the fact that you, as you said, two and a half times more junk food outlets in poorer neighborhoods than richer, mm -hmm. the advertising on public transport, advertising on our phones, advertising on Instagram, that is all ramped up in poorer neighborhoods to, to people from more disadvantaged backgrounds. The cards are stacked against people from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, you know, it's not the, the fault of two thirds of Australians or people from the UK mm. that they're now living, you know, struggling to maintain a healthy weight. It's actually a reflection, I think, of a broken food system and a lack of government action um, mm -hmm. to protect populations from a, a known public health risk. If you look at where we get our food from, it's like five main supermarkets in the UK. That's how we source food. And the yeah. majority of those shelves are ultra processed. So there's no wonder why two thirds of people's shopping baskets are full of ultra processed foods. And, and this leads me on to, you know, a really interesting topic that you talk about a lot, which is like the double burden of disease where mm. people might not recognize this, but the obesity, and I say it as a word as an epidemic, and that sounds quite extreme, mm. but the rise in obesity that we've had over the last few years has actually shown an increase in, in malnutrition. And people might think, mm. well, how does that work with the double burden of disease? Because if you think of malnutrition and you, know, you think of somebody who might come to see me with an eating disorder or not eating enough, you think mm. they might be quite malnourished. But actually you can have somebody who is again, obese or overweight and also be malnourished. And there's this link with our food systems and what we're consuming is that it's so it's not nutrient dense it's so lacking in mm. nutrients and our micronutrients that we need and we're now having this new occurring problem of the double burden of disease could you talk a little bit about that and explain to people who are listening what that really means yeah absolutely so so again it comes back to that great transformation that we talked about before so over the last 100 years we've gone from high levels of hunger in many countries the, the, the traditional pathway for a country over its development going from kind of poor to rich as the country, you know, like the UK over the last 200 years, it's industrialised, it, most people have moved to cities, you've uh, modernised your economy um, and, you know, food production has become more centralised, et cetera, et cetera. It's led to a whole bunch of changes in society. And what we see at the, at the public health level is that you go from high levels of high death rates, high birth rates. So you have more babies because more, more of them are going to die younger from infectious diseases, water and sanitation issues. This, was, this is going back two, 300 years in the UK. Over time, the, the birth rates and death rates come down. You live a longer life. The life expectancy increases. We also get taller over that time because we're, we actually get adequate nutrition early in life. That's why uh, the height of people in many countries has increased over the last couple of centuries. And you go from having a high number of uh, non-infectious diseases, chronic, uh, sorry, a high, high number of infectious diseases and water and sanitation related uh, diseases, so hunger, um, infection, those sorts of things. You go from a high number of those to a low number, 
because of all the things we talked about before, toilets, uh, infrastructure, urbanization, uh, security of our food system and interconnectedness and globalization of it. But you see an increase in chronic conditions, diabetes, heart disease. And so they kind of cross over in the middle and you end up with kind of a, a medium amount at some point, but this happens over a 200 year period in the UK. In many countries, but I suppose the question, the question though is what happens when development happens? So in, in Mongolia, they went from 30% of the population living in cities to 70% in 10 years. Wow. In the UK, that took two centuries. So what happens when you squish that process down to 10 years rather than 200 years? You end up with an overlap. You end up with high levels of undernutrition, of hunger, of stunting, but you also end up with high levels of obesity. The Indonesia is a good example. 30% of children are still stunted. That means that one in three children in, in, in Indonesia today still um, are not able to get adequate food for such a long period early in life that they will never fully develop physically, mentally, intellectually, economically, socially. They will be smaller, their, their heart will be smaller, their kidneys will be smaller, their brain will be under, underdeveloped in some cases. Um, and it will lead to lifelong challenges for that individual. So 30, one in three young people in Indonesia, it, stunting is still a challenge, is still something that they, they face. At the same time, one in three adult women are facing overweight or obesity. In fact, you can be in the same household and have a mother who is struggling with a healthy weight, overweight or obese, maybe even anemic, deficient in, for example, iron, and, and a child who, because they're growing so fast and not able to get adequate nutrition, are, are stunted, are, are suffering from undernutrition. So that's because we've, you know, the processes are now happening so fast, but also because you have countries, poorer countries, where a globalised food system where junk food and ultra-processed foods and the big food manufacturers are all fully in there, selling their products, advertising on every corner, you know, handing out samples to kids at schools, advertising on, you know, school, school sports programs, whatever else it is. So gone are the days where a country goes from being, you know, a poorer country develops and then uh, those, those companies start to come into the country and transform its food system. It's all happening at once. So that's mm -hmm. one example of the double burden in countries like you know, particularly in middle-income countries, it's a big problem. It's a big challenge for policymakers and for, and for families and individuals. The other example is at the end of that transformation that I talked about. So we go from, you know, over time, traditionally over 200 years, but in some countries now over one or two decades, you go from high levels of infectious disease to low levels, low levels of chronic disease to high levels. But what happens after that? You know, where do you go after that? The world continues to change. It doesn't just stop. And what we're actually seeing is in Australia, for example, now we have two thirds of, of individuals, two thirds of adults are overweight or obese, mm -hmm. as I said, large, largely because of a broken food system and a lack of political will and action, not because of a failure on the part of individuals. We can get back to that in a second. Mm. But also we're seeing two thirds of those individuals who are overweight or obese are actually micronutrient deficient. So the diets that we can afford, the food that we can access, 
the food that we are able or that we know or that we have time or that we can access to cook each and every day is now so commodified, so, um, so globalized uh, and has been turned, has gone from a, a, from a, a, from food so far to becoming just a group of products that the food is, our, our diets are now full of discretionary foods, ultra processed foods, cheaper foods, but very accessible foods that are probably being bombarded on us every day on our phones and, and, and every, on every corner of, of the street that we pass, mm-hmm. that we are actually seeing an epidemic. And I think the epidemic word is absolutely correct. It is a global, it, it's a pandemic. I mean, it is a global phenomenon. 2 billion people, 2.1 billion people, that's a B, mm. wake up every morning now overweight or obese across the planet. So in a country like Australia and the UK, not only are two thirds of adults overweight or obese, but two thirds of those individuals are actually deficient in key micronutrients because our, our, our diets are now so processed, so calorie dense, but nutrient poor that while we're eating more calories, we're actually still not getting sufficient nutrients. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a food systems failure on an, on an epic global scale and, 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 Sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, people just need to eat more, eat better food. Well, to that, I, I would use an analogy of a schoolyard. If you, if you had a class of 30 students and one of them was getting bad grades, you could maybe assume that it's a learning, a learning issue with that individual. And you might have a discussion with the individual. You might talk to the, their parents. You might think, well, maybe it's a problem with their eyesight or something else. It's, it's something with the individual. But if two thirds of a class of students were getting bad grades when none of the others around them were, then you would naturally say, okay, it's a problem with the teacher. Mm -hmm. It's a problem with the way we're teaching. It's a problem with the light in the schoolroom. It's a problem with the air. It's a problem with, it's a structural issue. It's an environmental issue. It's a problem of a collective a result. It's not, you can't, you know, two thirds of, 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 of the class aren't going to just suddenly start failing. That's, that's a nonsense. And mm-hmm. to try and pretend that it's the individual's fault is completely unfair and false. Mm-hmm. But if you scale it up, you have countries where two thirds of individuals are overweight or obese, and yet we continue to blame and shame the individual instead of realizing that actually the elephant in the room is that it's a structural issue. It's an issue with the way that we are, we are promoting poor quality food so aggressively, we're indoctrinating kids from six months of age. Kids can start to connect brand names and can start to recall brand names. So they're learning from the earliest age. It's the confusion that we're providing to parents about you know, what, a, what a young child should or can be eating and the lack of support that we're providing parents all the way through to it's the food that we're, we're serving at schools, it's the advertising of junk food that you see on your favourite sporting sporting uh, um, team as a young child. It's the endless billboards you pass on the public transport on your way to and from school. It's the fact that you're told every day if you want to be cool, if you want to be, you know, liked, if you want to be, you know, this famous person, eat this junk food. Mm. And it's the, it's the fact that we're, you know, also putting parents in this incredibly difficult situation where 
good food is now so expensive and so inaccessible and so complex and confusing. Yeah. And yet junk food is everywhere and it's cheap and it's being advertised to their kids. It comes with a toy for God's sake. Mm. I mean, you know, of, so, so when you're, when you're time poor, money poor and trying to make ends meet and do the best by your family and your kids are saying, this is what they want because they've been told that's what they want by industry, you know, I don't think that's an issue of, of, you know, of failure by any individual. This is an issue that we have to solve as a population. And what do you think we need to solve it? Well, I mean, as, as with last century, how did we solve the infectious disease pandemics, water and sanitation issues? It wasn't doctors. It wasn't people like me that solved, you know, the, the, the issue of polio or, um, you know, water, uh, fresh water. It was engineers, it was lawyers, and it was politicians taking bold leadership. And that's what it yeah. will be again in this situation. Do you think so they'll do it's that? About, do you think they'll step up? Well, I mean, so it's things like banning advertising to children of junk food. You, mm. the Northern Europe, Scandinavia, they have a complete ban on advertising of uh, any food products, and mm. uh, they can't advertise um, junk food. The UK has brought in a ban on junk food advertising on public transport. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. So it means kids can go to school and not be reminded you know, 15 times on their way to school and 15 times on their way back that they're not good enough if they don't consume these terrible products that are actually not good for their health. You know, that's protecting kids. That's putting kids before profits. And it's Mm -hmm. saying, no, you know, we're not going to sell off the attention of our kids to the highest bidder. We're going to protect them and we're going Mm -hmm. to ban advertising. We're going to make the, the public transport system free from advertising of junk food. That's a great example of a, of a, of a policy that, that works. Mm. Uh, increasing the price of sugary drinks. We've done this in lots of parts, places around the world. In mm-hmm. Philadelphia, they increased the price of sugary drinks. They used the money to, to pay for physical activity, education in children and childcare. In Mexico, they used it to offset some of the costs of accessing fresh water. Mm. In Australia, the organisation I run, 35 years ago, we taxed tobacco and we use the money to pay for health promotion. So, so there are models that exist. In Chile and uh, Peru, they've brought in really progressive, bold, you know, very obvious warning labels on food. This f- big kind of stop sign, black stop sign on the front of the food package that says this food is high in sugar, this food is high in salt. So the consumer is not trying to search and understand, oh, you know, the 15 different words for sugar that they've put on the back of the label, you know. Which you need a nutrition degree to understand. (laughs) Well, even then, I mean, they come up with these wild and wacky ways to hide sugar and and stay one step ahead. I mean, Mm -hmm. putting it really clearly on the label so that parents can can navigate. In the supermarket, taking cartoon characters off sugar cereals that are 30% sugar. Like Mm -hmm. this doesn't seem like brain surgery, Mm -hmm. but actually... It's, it is hard to do. It does take bold uh, leadership from government, but some governments around the world are doing it mm-hmm. and we're seeing good results as, as an outcome. So in Australia, we, you know, we, we, we brought plain packaging to the world for tobacco. It's seen tobacco, tobacco use rates in Australia crash and huge benefits for public health. As I said, Peru and Chile, look at the examples there of food labelling, Mexico with its sugar tax, Northern Europe with its bans on on advertising 
Germany with its school food programs, uh, where they're using the aggregate power. So you talked before about how do you make good food cheaper? Well, it's economies of scale. You've got to use the economy. You know, so by, by cities and governments and schools at the huge macro level, if you've got 10 million children that you're feeding every day, if mm. you tell the market, we want to feed them good food, they will grow it. Mm. And if they know that, they, that they're going to be able to sell that good food to you at a good price, they will grow it and they will continue to grow it. And what happens, which is what we saw in Denmark, in Copenhagen, so the, the country, the, the city said, we're going to move to 90% organic procurement and provision in, in all of the um, city uh, um, agencies, in schools, in all of that. And um, what happened, the market said, okay, there's a huge demand for organic food now. We're going to convert all of our land to organic. And actually what happened was it brought down the price of organic food to the point that there's very little discrepancy now between the two because people invested, companies invested, farmers invested in organic farming. They invested in finding ways to grow more food at lower cost that was organic because they knew the market was there and, what, and, and the outcome was that actually Copenhagen hit its target years ahead of, um, of time, uh, which is pretty unusual in, in most worlds, in most places these days, usually we're decades behind. So, so there are things that we can do. There are mm -hmm. examples around the world. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think, I think as, as listeners to this podcast, it's about, you know, understanding, familiarising yourself, first of all, with the realities of the world, the challenges we face, it's about understanding that this is not a, a failure of, of will or hard work by any individual. Mm -hmm. This is a deck of cards stacked against every young person across the planet to maintain good health. It is so difficult to do that these days. And, and for a lot of people, it's financially impossible. It is, yeah. it is expensive to be healthy. And yeah. that, is, that, that makes me really angry. Yeah. And, and, and finally, there are solutions. There are things that we can do. And, you know, even modelling those things in the UK, like what you guys have done with the junk food ban on, or, or, you know, phasing out advertising on public transport or the sugar, the sugary drinks tax, it's so important because it sends a message to the rest of the world. People look up to the UK, Australians look up to the UK, other politicians look up to UK politicians and they say, all right, if the UK is doing it, then maybe it's time for us to do it. Or if the UK can do it and afford to take that risk and show that actually, as it's shown just in the last two weeks, that it actually didn't bring any um, terrible outcomes for industry, that it's got brought good health outcomes for people and hasn't affected the economy. That's a great story that gives then the confidence to other politicians, other leaders, other populations around the world to implement those same policies. So yes, there are things that we can do, definitely. We start looking at Copenhagen. It's one of my favourite cities in the world. I have to say. Yeah, I know. I love oh, Denmark. I, I know. do everything. The, right. land of, the land of tall, beautiful people, tall, tall beautiful giants on bicycles. And, there um, it is. And they're all eating their organic food and they're all beautifully dressed and they speak five languages. Yes, I'm a big fan of Denmark too. Absolutely. Too. It's a wonderful country. <laughs> so I know we've not got long left, but I'm dying to ask you just briefly about the Eat Lancet, because I know that you yep. were the former CEO at Eat Foundation, which yep. is a fantastic foundation. And you brought together 37 scientists to look at how we can answer a question that by 2050, we can feed 10 billion people sustainably. 
Yep. This is gonna, not going. I know it's not going to be a, the full answer because we've not got that long. But how can individuals start making choices to eat more sustainably? Because you talk a lot about the planetarian diet. You know, what is the planetarian diet? How can people make these food choices to live sustainably? Yeah, awesome. So, as you say, we 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 asked thirty seven of the world's best scientists. It took them two years to answer the question. And really, the 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 answer they gave was was probably more questions than answers. But they did give <laughs> a, a, a really good starting place and a really important starting place. Um, so, the the three levers are, you know, first of all, um, fruit and veg first. Twenty twenty one is the International Year of Fruit and Vegetables. The single best thing you can do for your health is to increase the amount of fruit and vegetables on your plate. Now, naturally, a lot of other things will then get pushed off the plate or might become smaller. That is part of the puzzle. But I think taking a strengths-based approach of, you know, increase fruit and veg, find the ones you love, celebrate them, mm. find the couple of recipes you enjoy and make them and share them. But fruit and vegetables for a whole bunch of reasons we don't have time to go into, that's my number one, that's the number one takeaway. And that will have flow on effects and transform the global food system if everyone on the if, if everyone in the UK tomorrow started eating more fruits and vegetables, it would transform the food system in some very positive ways. Mm -hmm. The second is to reduce food waste. So a third of food is wasted pre-market or aftermarket, but in places like the UK, it's food waste, not loss. It's food mm -hmm. that is lot that is wasted in 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 uh, supermarkets because we don't want to buy ugly food, or it's in our own homes because we don't know how to use leftovers. We don't want to use that kind of you know, half an aubergine or whatever. So being more conscious of food waste, buying the ugly vegetables in the supermarket, uh, learning some recipes to use up the, the six or eight things in the fridge. I love on a Sunday doing a big pot of Mexican chili or a bolognese sauce. You know, there are a couple or a soup. There are a couple mm, of go-to recipes that on a Sunday I can throw in pretty much anything in the fridge that I can find. A frittata mm. is another great one. Mm -hmm. You know, throw in anything that I can find and, and it uses up everything because I know on Monday, my next veggie box will arrive from the growers and um, I, I want to have my fridge empty. And I want to also increase the amount of fruit and veg I'm eating. So thinking about how can you use leftovers? Um, how can you buy uh, ugly, ugly fruit and veg? Um, and, um, and, and, and yeah, sorry. And also how can you use leftover food? So if there's a little bit of pasta left from last night, it makes a really good, again, a frittata. Or if you have um, bread, like leftover bread, my God, there are so many amazing things you can do with leftover bread, croutons, um, breadcrumbs. You, there's a great trick of wetting the bread and putting it back in the oven for 20 minutes. And it tastes like it's fresh. I swear. It's like this trick that my, da my Danish friend taught me. Um, so, you know, I know the Danish. Oh, my God, the Danes. Um, so, you know, how you thinking about how you use leftovers, how you use those half half bits of food and how you eat um, ugly food, reducing food waste, so important. And then the last is vote with your note. We as consumers spend money. Every time we spend money, we make a decision and we support either the food system we have or the food system we should have, we can have, we want to have the food system of the future. So, you know, voting with your note, and that's not to put, you know, to say, because I know that a lot of people are, are, are on really tight budgets, but mm. it might be about, you know, eating. What I do is I eat less meat, but when I do eat meat, I buy 
good quality. I buy meat that's given a good life to the farmer, a good life to the animal, um, and it's better for me and it's tastier. Mm -hmm. And I don't need that much meat in my life. I need mm -hmm. just enough to be healthy. You know, once a week I might have some red meat. And for many people, they're vegetarian and, and I fully support, or even vegan, and I fully support that as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, voting with your note, even if you're vegetarian, eggs, buy the best quality eggs you can find. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a little bit more, but, but across the week's budget, it's not going to make a huge difference. And it might be the cost of an extra, you know, one less coffee, or it might be, you know, that you swap something else out. But they taste better. The chicken's got a much better life. Mm -hmm. They're probably produced more sustainably, and they're probably produced with, le with less hormones and antibiotics. <clears throat> so them are really the three at the individual levels, individual level at, at the at the at the national and global level that's really the focus of the united nations food system summit this year so i'd really encourage all your listeners to follow the summit there's a lot going on on twitter on clubhouse on um, instagram around the food system summit so check that out um, and I, I also will be sharing a lot of those things on on my channels but at the individual level it's those it's those three things it, you know really celebrate and 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 lean into fruit and veg look at how you can food you can reduce waste uh and reduce food waste more broadly uh mm -hmm. by by the way that you eat and act and cook and vote with your note a decision every dollar you make is a decision either for the food system we have or the food system we want i'm going to put a link to actually to the report in the show notes and i think you said something really interesting about that it being more expensive obviously with that's why you need to eat a little bit more less meat so you can use that extra money to buy very good sustainable meat but at the same time we've got this fantastic thing in the uk and i'm not endorsed by them it's not an ad it's just something that i use i always feel like i have to say that so it's organic but it's called Oddbox, and they source yeah, all the wonky awesome. fruit and vegetables awesome. from the british farmers that would have gone to waste and actually yep. get it every week and it's I mean, half of that I can't believe it's even wonky. I'm like, this looks perfect. But, you know, you <laughs> like can which get... bit? Which bit's wonky? <laughs> yeah, which bit's wonky? But then again, you yeah. save money as well because that's Absolutely. already reduced. So there is some really yeah. fantastic ways and some great apps as well that you can download. Yeah, um, just and, and also, and also, what I would add is, is um, if you buy wonky, but that means that you can afford to buy a little bit more of it and have more fruits and mm -hmm. vegetables in your house, if you can buy an extra couple of pieces of fruit and therefore you're eating more of it i mean wonky doesn't change its nutrition it doesn't no. change its taste no. uh so it's also a really good and way it's of seasonal maybe... which means exactly. it's all really nutritional dense because it's not been flown yeah. from halfway across the world for five days to get to you and yeah. being depleted in the in the air travel again climate change there's this whole food system it's all connected it's all connected <laughs> it's all connected so lastly what does live well be well mean to you well, food, honestly, for me, the first thing I think about is food um, because, you know, living well and being well to me is not just about health. It's bigger than that. It's about, it's about being really nourished and um, strong and proud and, um, you know, empowered. I think, you know, it, it's, it's about being a whole human. And um, for me, food is so critical to that because it's not just, the building block of life. It's not just something that we enjoy. It's not just calories. As I said, it, you know, it's it's the thing you do with your with your two year old child. Uh, it's the thing that connects two strangers. It's um, it's the thing that doesn't matter where you are in the world. You know, you all share. Um, and it's 
it, it and it's the system that connects the entire planet human and non-human um so for me i think if i think about you know yeah i mean it has to be has to be food i yeah i completely agree food is definitely <laughs> living well being well being a nutritionist i can't not agree with that one can <laughs> I? it's, it's got to be the correct answer um and where can everyone find you what channels because i know you post so many fa- so much fantastic content and you have also not yeah. so many great not-for-profits people should follow where can they look at all the great evidence advice uh, awesome. So you can check, uh, I'm, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, which is at Sandro DeMeo, one word. Um, if you want to check out the Netflix series, it's called Ask the Doctor. You can get your binge of Aussie accents from three Aussie <laughs> doctors. Um, uh, and my books on uh, Booktopia and um, Amazon. I would just say that all the proceeds from my book go to charity. So I don't have any interest in selling more copies. Uh, and all the proceeds from my TV show also go to charity. Um, but, um, so I'm not, I don't have a vested interest, but if you're interested in, in good, in good food and cooking and nutrition, check it out. And we've got the same uh, measurement system here in Australia too. So that's very handy for you. Okay. Um, and, uh, but otherwise on social, yeah, at Sandro DeMeo, one word. Well, I know all my listeners will love that because they're hugely into health, wellness, nutrition and science and everything else. So I'm sure they will be going checking out your TV show (laughs) and I'd highly recommend your book as well because I got it to you the other day and it's there's delicious recipes in there so I'd highly recommend it awesome thank you so much for coming on thank you Thank you so much for listening to Live Well, Be Well. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed that episode. And if you did, please do leave a five-star review. It means a lot to me and also helps share the episode widely to more people. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.